welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump Epstein and the Secret History of the Anglo American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, joining us today is a UK-based independent researcher who covers a variety of topics, very much a fellow after my own heart, and his specialty is a topic I have a great interest in. He is the host of the YouTube channel Understanding Conspiracy and the author of the forthcoming work, The Nephilim Looked Like Clowns. Folks, I give you guys Paul Stobbs. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Thanks for having me. All right, in case you folks haven't guessed by now, this show is about clowns. Nasty clowns, evil clowns, trippy clowns, dirty clowns, and especially demonic clowns. This is a deep, deep dive down a most peculiar rabbit hole. We're starting with the Nephilim, and we're going to work our way up to modern-day manifestations such as the Joker and Pennywise. Why does this archetype haunt our imagination? Why in the West are we subjected to it from such a young age? And what is driving all this? And on that note, let us start the show. Paul, what is your view on the origins of the Nephilim to start off with? Uh, right. Well, I personally come at it from a biblical perspective. I know many people have their own views on ancient giants of, of the past. Um, I, I think it's first, the first thing we need to understand is really what the Nephilim means as a name. Um, I understand it to be an umbrella term for multiple tribes of giants um, found within biblical stories. Um there's varying bodily attributes unique to their own kind. Um, the word finds its source within the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. So when we talk about the Nephilim, we are talking about a strictly biblical concept. 
uh, from that perspective. Uh, to quote biblical canon in Genesis 6, 4, it says, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bore children to them. Uh, the same became mighty men, which are men of old, men of renown. Uh, now, the word giant found in the King James Version, um, which I quoted there, is a true translation of the word giant. However, it's often replaced with Nephilim in many other versions of the Bible, such as the New International Version. Um, and for good reason, if we examine Strong's Concordance, um, the word giant, or the one used there, is a transliteration of the Hebrew word nephil, which means a a bully or tyrant or a giant. Um, so the Bible was talking about literal giants in that respect. Um, on closer inspection, you'll find that actually that word nephil has its primitive root in another word called nephal, um, or nephal, which is the primitive root to fall um in a many variety of applications um causative literal or figurative um so what i what i gather from that and what many of the contrarian christians like myself have gathered from that is that uh, the word nephilim has a dual meaning of a tyrannical giant um as well as a root relation to something corrupt or fallen um, and i personally believe this has a lot to do with the uh, the angels who fell from heaven and rebelled against god who played a part in creating the nephilim uh, the sons of god in that though it's contested quite a lot um in uh, church churchianity circles shall we say um i do believe personally that the sons of god reference there are the uh, the angels the watch class angels um many people out there obviously argue that uh, the nephilim were created because the the righteous sons of seth copulated with the um the unrighteous daughters of cain and then obviously giants were born to them but as a christian contrarian myself um, I follow mainly the works of people like Gary Wayne, who attest that no, um, it's kind of naive and ridiculous to consider that two humans having sex would just create giants. I think it's best to understand that um, the origins of the Nephilim, in my opinion, and like I said, the opinion of many of the people who've done far better work than I have on it is, it's the uh, fallen angels mating with human women that through some bizarre incursion in the ancient antediluvian, antediluvian past uh, created these these giants. And uh, these giants, as I understand, and from my own research and write for the book, um, basically came about as a revenge uh, kind of device for rebellious angels and also um, working closely with Cain, who was also in his own rebellious phase at that point, um, to create something that would utterly corrupt creation created by God. Um, so I have this interesting quote here written by um, an author called Gary Wayne, who wrote a lot about this and um, first of all the, the creation of Nephilim was a huge conspiracy orchestrated by the two parties i mentioned earlier and um, the idea was to spurn the creator of the universe the rebellious of the angels um sorry the rebellious angels who were outraged at the thought of having to bow down to a man and cain who was rejected an outcast for murdering his brother in a fit of adolescent rage um so what gary says on the matter is you know consider that adam was a mortal mammal created from clay and genetically akin to primates or monkeys, while seraphim angels were powerful, immortal beings created from smokeless fire, if you want to quote the Quran on that description. Uh, seraphims were pre-Eden, snake-like beings, dragons, complete with wings. Seraphim angels are obviously more akin to and comfortable with extinct dinosaurs, for an example, and uh, reptilian-like forms from ancient epochs past. Gary concludes that the seraphim angels likely partook in creating 
and after their own image, beings as seraphims uh, reigned over the earth as archons and rulers. So these beings that he theorizes um, they would have created before man would have been reptilian-like beings, like say the giant reptiles of the past we find all over the earth, such as dinosaurs. Um, therefore, you know, these seraphim angels regarded Adam, a mammal like a primate, receiving incredible blessings from God as an insult of immense and unprecedented proportions. Um, seraphim angels would have persistently and persuasively maintained with God that perhaps a serpent-like being with a crocodile um, body or a pre-Eden serpent uh, perhaps should have received more those blessings and inheritance and not the mammal. Um, I think that was much to do with uh, Lucifer's rebellion as well. And that's, that's an interesting concept from my perspective, you know, that what would be the motivation for angels to to do what they did and uh, mate with human women? One could argue that they just simply lusted after the women because women were so attractive. But I do believe there was this um, underlying resentment towards creation and a need to corrupt it and destroy it. Um, so much of the birth of Nephilim and the subsequent, subsequent actions are documented mainly in the Book of Enoch and the Book of Giants. And um, it out, outwardly states in that book, you know, that the angels did take wives, sleep with the humans and create giants. And those giants, which we call the Nephilim, were an utterly destructive force on the earth from their immediate inception. I think there was a slight, very short era where humanity lived alongside them. But very quickly, the giants could no longer be sustained. Their hunger continued to grow along with their stature. And they very quickly became cannibalistic, fearful, terrifying rulers over man. They were they became the kings and rulers over an antediluvian age. Um, this is something I discussed at length in the opening of my book, which I'm just about to finish the uh, the first section, which covers all of this. Um, I could go on for hours describing that world, but it's important to understand that um, these giants, which we call the Nephilim, did become the kings and rulers of the past. Um, by the sixth generation is when they were kind of brought into the antediluvian age. And we understand from following the genealogy of the Bible down to Noah, um, there was only 10 generations from Adam to Noah. So in four generations, they took complete control over humanity as the kings and rulers. Um, and within four generations, they utterly corrupted everything to the point where a flood had to be uh, created. Um, again, it's interesting to talk about the antediluvian past. It's something I, I could go on for hours, but as um, just to describe where the Nephilim came from and um, what they did as briefly as I can, I think that pretty much sums it up. And it's probably best to stick to the point of the clowns in this show. So maybe it's probably best to leave leave that there. But if you have any questions or you want to expand on anything, let me know. No, it's it's certainly a fascinating topic. Um, did you have anything else uh, to describe in regards to the features of these creatures or anything in that regard? Yeah, well, as as Wayne mentioned there in that paragraph, I summarized to you, you know, you don't just have to look at the Bible to understand this, as I'll explain, but it, um, if we do want to just start with biblical descriptions, um, these things where, let's say, in apocryphal texts like the, the Book of Amran, which was discovered with the Book of Enoch, um, along with the Dead Sea Scrolls, in that book, we have a very brief passage where um, Amran has a vision where he's visited by two seraphim angels, and they are described as having the face of an adder and wearing extremely colourful, bright, multicoloured robes. Um, now that an adder, obviously, if you ever look at an adder itself, it's it's quite a psychedelic pattern snake. 
Um, I do believe the Seraphim Angels, specifically the Watcher class angels, had more serpentine features than anything else. If we look outside of this and let's look to, let's say, um, the, the cultures of Mesoamerica and the Aztecs and the Mayans, um, they have the feathered serpent iconography everywhere. Um, I personally, from my own research, understand that a lot of these cultures in, in the Americas, the South Americas and the Middle Americas, the Aztecs and so forth, I do think they are remnants of an antediluvian period where serpent cults were very prevalent and the worship of the serpent and the serpent gods, such as Quetzalcoatl, was the main feature of their culture. Um, and I think that maybe continued after the flood as well and very little changed, um, perhaps continuing their practices more as ancestral spirit worship rather than literal serpent worship. Um, so if I was to describe what the the fathers of the Nephilim looked like, they were serpent beings. Uh, dragons is one way to describe it, you know, winged serpents. Um, they were anamorphic in many ways, angels. I think they had many features of many types of animals. So along with uh, serpent-like features, I think they had um, avian-like features, bird-like features as well. Hence, obviously, the, the wings of an angel is a good um, archetypical example of that representation. But birds themselves can be extremely psychedelic in their own plumage and feathers. Um, think of a peacock, for example. Um, <clears throat> so I would say the seraphim angels had avian um, reptilian-like features, and so did their offspring. Now, this is probably something we'll cover more as the podcast goes on, and I, you know, ex- share with you a few examples of uh, folk traditional cultures and their practices and the garbs they were to imitate these creatures. And um, I do believe the Nephilim offspring um, were very psychedelic in in looks, um, and obviously this will relate to the clown features we'll talk about later as well. Uh, but the the main understanding you need to get is that the the human element mixed with the reptilian element created a very pale skinned, but also psychedelic patterned skinned at the same time creature with uh, reptilian like features, which include a very large wide grinned mouth. Um, but also I believe um, skin perhaps scales were involved as well. And um, what we do know about the Nephilim is they were a truly terrifying thing to behold. Um, so these creatures as I understand it, and like I said, we'll explain later, um, we're very colorful. Let's just say that for now. I'm not as familiar with um, the South or Central American traditions, but uh, or really even as much with Mexico's, but uh, in terms of the North American tribes, of course, they had the uh, sort of spiritual hierarchy, I guess, uh, where you had kind of three levels of existence or reality if you will uh you had uh the upper world which was the dominion of the thunderbirds and then you had middle earth which was you know basically the world that we existed in as humanity and then you had uh the underworld which was typically uh depicted as being ruled by a plumed serpent the great uh serpent or something to that effect Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, fascinatingly enough, there was also the whole concept of the the other world, uh, which is usually confabulated with the underworld, but they were actually uh, kind of distinct regions. Specifically, the other world was uh, almost like a backwards earth, if you will. I, I've often gotten the impression that it was a very, um, you know, if you're familiar with Twin Peaks, a very uh, 
red room esque or you know kind of black lodge type place uh where you had some mm-hmm. your evil doubles and all this other kind of things um so yeah that's one instance i can think of in that and um also too with the colors as well of course the uh preeminent psychedelics in a lot of cases i mean besides you know ayahuasca and uh, magic mushrooms there would have also been a lot of peyote uh, which is i think definitely the most in terms of colors and what have you extreme and um i know some of the artwork you'd actually shown me that's what had really jumped out to me was the overlap with um a lot of the depictions you know that i've seen on mescaline yeah, no, well, the psychedelic realm and obviously things like um, dimethyltryptamine, um, psilocybin and the experiences within them play a huge role in my theory and um, what probably we can get deep into in this conversation if you want. And I come from a psychedelic background myself. Um, I wasn't always a Christian. I wasn't raised a Christian. Um, I, I became born again, if you want to call it that, uh, maybe probably eight, maybe seven years ago now. Um, I'm 30, so I came into it quite late in life, essentially. Um, I don't speak Christianese, you know, I'm not really a member of a, of a particular church. I, I don't really, I don't feel comfortable in them and, um, I don't feel like they're really on, on board or on a level to the type of things I like to discuss as a Christian contrarian in that respect. You know, personally, you know, I, I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and savior. Um, I don't consider the things I talk about here a salvation issue in any respect, but uh, you won't find many Christians in church willing to talk about uh, giants and reptilian serpent like beings and giants, you know, eating people. Um, it's just, especially not the clown topic. So um, oh, I, I don't judge. I mean, trust yeah. me, many of my uh, closest colleagues and friends are christians uh yeah yeah it's yeah there's a lot of unfortunate stereotypes about true you know that there is uh i mean obviously there is some that especially in the united states that do live up to the stereotypes but there are plenty of other very unconventional christians out there but what the point i'm trying to make it's neither here nor there about my faith in regards to this but what i'm trying to say is you know um even though i am a christian i do have a lot of knowledge in the psychedelic realm it's where i came from before reaching that point um, I, I know I, I I did quite a lot of it in my day, you know, <laughs> um, and I, I explored those realms that we can get deep into this other world, let's say, that the um, people who, who drink ayahuasca were probably talking about, um, you know, and I, I've I've seen things and I, I kind of have a perspective where I know I, I, I kind of understand the complexities behind it, you know, and um, I, I went down that more Gnostic, Hermetic type route, but can call it New Age if you want, though I would never consider myself a, a hippie type, you know. I was quite serious and uh, logistical and analytical about the whole experiences. I was looking for something specific. Um, in the bottom of it all, um, I inevitably found God, you know, but um, I wouldn't ever recommend that you do psychedelics to find God. That wasn't the point of it. Um, I, I don't do these things anymore. I've left all that behind. Um, but the, those experiences def- definitely helped me, um, I suppose, trans- translate and um, bring this this theory to the forefront, you know, because I have a particular understanding about these psychedelic realms. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it kind of all worked in, in its own way, you know, and obviously I, I naturally believe it's, I suppose, God in a way had a plan for me to talk about this, but I was ne- I'm not somebody who really thinks of thought about or even thinks that deeply now about clowns i suppose you know i don't hold them as some kind of um, significant or important thing to me personally and they never really have been 
it's an odd subject even for me to talk about, but it seems to be something that I I I own now in a way. Do you, do you get what I mean? It's um, inadvertently. <laughs> and the the more I kind of dig into this and discover, the deeper the rabbit hole starts to go. Um, which is why I'm writing the book about it now, and I have a you know a thirty part series on YouTube, which just keeps growing day by day. And um, yeah, so like I said, the psychedelic realm. Um, I do believe, especially the North America cultures, um, the rife with with flood myths, um, and and kind of a mythology which perfectly fits into this. Um, it's not uncommon to see the headdresses of the chieftains in these tribes. Um, I explained you no know, how a nephilim looks. Would have been a feathered serpent in some way, and the feathered plumed um, hats are, are a very common motif in most of these tribes, along with the black and white patterns, um, which obviously you talked about in Twin Peaks. It occurs quite a lot. I do believe a lot of people in the industry um, have an occult knowledge of these things and these realms, these psychedelic realms in which these uh, spirits now reside. And I think the black and white pattern has a lot to do with that. But I think that's maybe something we can get into uh, um, as as this conversation goes on. I think it's best for now to, to kind of lay a solid foundation for what I mean when I say the Nephilim look like clowns. Yeah. Because um, because I suppose the title is kind of a lie. It's kind of a hook that gets people in. You know, what do you mean the Nephilim look like clowns? But the truth is, you know, clowns didn't exist when the Nephilim roamed the earth. Um, the real way of saying it is clowns look like Nephilim, you know. Um, so I, I try to lay the foundation down first that, you know, the Nephilim did exist. Giants certainly roam the earth. Don't just take the Bible's word for it. Let's look at all these other cultures, which I do in my book at length. And obviously on my series at length, that attests to the existence of very real psychedelic looking beings, which were giants that terrorized the earth at some point. Um, The Book of Enoch describes that they basically killed each other off in a bloody battle for power and dominance. Um, They weren't said to be the most intelligent beings, very prideful. Um, And it was said that the punishment for the angels who created these monsters was that they would have to watch their offspring kill each other and then turn on their own parents, the angels, and try to kill them and take their position as the only gods on earth. You know, they were very prideful beings. Um, And the angels had to kill their own children as a result as well. And the very few that remained after all this chaos were wiped out by the flood. You know, and um, if you want to get into flood myths again, I could go on for hours about flood myths. Um, you know, every tribe within every region, within every country, within every continent, all around the earth has a variation of a flood myth, um, and it usually separates into four categories. So it's it's either an identical retelling of the Noah flood myth, in which God is displeased with humanity, so sends a flood to reset the world, saving a man and his family along with animals on a boat. Uh, nuances like the bird being released to find land or a rainbow being present is usually included with this myth but there's always cultural differences and slight slight nuance changes based on the geographic location of the myth so we always find the noah copy everywhere but we also find this secondary story this secondary myth told by different tribes which is very similar to the noah myth it involves an individual and his family being saved on a boat of some kind However, in this version, the individual is usually of some kind of nobility. And he's usually warned by an angel or a member of a pantheon of gods. So not the big god directly. And in this story, the big bad god is upset over something very petty and stupid. So sends a flood. And the survival of humanity 
is a victory against this tyrannical creator's plan. Um, so think of the Epic of Gilgamesh as another example of this. So in the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, Enlil sends a flood um, because he is he thinks humanity is making too much noise and he can't get his nap, basically. Um, which is, you know, this makes Enlil sound like a really petty tyrant who murdered billions just due to something as simple as lack of sleep. Now, this is a far cry from the God of the Bible, who was deeply grieved by the evil and suffering brought upon his creation by the angels and the evils of uh, Cain's and his lineage and the mankind. Um, also, Zuisudra, or Upnapishtim, if you want to go off the Akkadian um, or the, the later retellings of the story from Akkadia and not go off the Sumerian telling, um, he was listed and is, is documented as the 10th king in the antediluvian Larsa list of kings. Um, so he was the 10th king of Larsa in the antediluvian age. So we know who Upnapishtim actually is, and it's not Noah. But even though the story is similar, he gets saved on a boat. Now, um, the antediluvian kings, as I mentioned earlier, by that point were all Nephilim. All the kingships and the rulerships over mankind had been replaced by giants and terrifying rulers who worked for their parents, the fallen angels, you know, all fought against them or were having their own petty power struggles with other kings for dominance over the earth, you know. So we know that Zuizudra was a Nephilim, Upnapishtim, the one who was saved in the Epic of Gilgamesh story, wasn't a human like Noah. He was chosen to be saved by what I can assume um, is a rebellious angel who who's called um, Enki in this story. Um, against Enlil's wishes, you know. So if you want to see it from the biblical perspective, the Enoch perspective, that story is just a story of a, an angel trying to save one of his own children because he knew God was about to flood the earth. And it was positioned afterwards to describe God as just a a petty tyrant who was tired, who sent the flood. So it's a, it's a pathetic reason, you know. But you find all over the earth is these, is these stories mixed in with flood myths that always frames the god as a bad guy and humanity surviving as the victors over the flood, you know. But then you also find within them exact analogous stories to the Noah myth where God was justly upset and saved humanity as a mercy. Um, so they're the two main flood myths you find all over the earth. But then there's also these other ones that are kind of just thrown in there, uh, which don't relate to Noah at all. But it usually involves a flood happening because a person broke something or made a mistake that inadvertently flooded the area. Uh, the, fa- the survivors of this flood usually climbed to the top of a great mountain or a tree or something and just barely survived by the skin of the teeth out of sheer luck. So you get a lot of those myths in isolated pockets and areas around the earth. And then the other flood myth you find quite a lot is it considers the flood a good thing and a way of um, kind of form of a fertility ritual for the earth such as the Norse gods cutting up the body of Ymir and his blood raining down onto earth and creating the oceans to which life can then form, you know. So there's many ways to viewing the flood all around the earth, but one thing that is very clear is not one corner of this this earth has not been touched by a great deluge of some kind, which still haunts the memory of every single tribe. Um, so it being clear that a flood did happen, and most of them... And these myths mention something to do with gods and giants only attest to me that Enoch is true, you know, and it's it, that one account can be proven by external accounts all around the earth. Um, but the one important thing that Enoch mentions specifically is that 
um, the 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 beings that died, which were the Nephilim in this flood, their spirit remained on Earth, so they became demons, essentially that we call today. And um, when you consider this other world we mentioned earlier that you were talking about, I believe that's where they are now. And it's not essentially another world. It's this world right here, right now. But our perception of it is hidden behind a veil because we're embodied beings. Um, I believe they're trapped in a place in which our consciousness is when it's disembodied. Um, And because they haven't got bodies themselves now, they crave bodies through like our own, like humans' bodies. And that's where we get the possession phenomena occurring. Um, It's described in the Bible that when an unclean spirit leaves a man, and unclean spirits, as I mentioned, are these Nephilim uh, kings that once ruled the earth. You know, they wander in dry places and they hunger, but the hunger does not cease and they have no mouth and no means to satisfy those hungers. And that hunger isn't just food, it's desires. It's uh, the pleasures of the flesh, which they once indulged in. And that includes worship and being considered a god. Um, they can no longer experience as disability forms, so... You know, they use our bodies to vicariously experience those pleasures once once more. Um, and we'll get into, obviously, how tribes all around the earth um, have their own ancestor ritual, uh, ancestor worship rituals in which they willingly um, allow these spirits to enter their body in order to appease them and to let them have the pleasures of the flesh in their body with permission. Um, it's it's quite fascinating when we get into it, but um, I'll stop there, take a breath, and let me know if there's anything you want to ask me before we continue. But uh, I think that makes a point of you know uh, the giants existed, a flood really did happen, and as a result of that reset, um, we now have demons. Now it's one thing to get into, but um, we do know giants existed after the flood. Um, you can read a biblical account of numbers and all the tribes that were you know were slaughtered and basically purged after the flood. Um, they were Nephilim tribes, you know, which kind of survived. There are many stories all around the earth of um, second incursions of giants surviving the flood. As I mentioned earlier, the Epic of Gilgamesh is a Nephilim flood survival story. Um, but their numbers have certainly dwindled since that. And the power they held over mankind was definitely displaced as a result of the flood. So the flood was still successful in my eyes, though I know many people will consider me in the Christian faith to be blasphemous for saying that Nephilim survived the flood, um, saying that God was made a liar. But um, I don't think God failed simply because some survived the flood. I think the purpose of the flood was fulfilled by and no longer allowing them to rule as with such an iron fist as they once did and giving mankind the whip hand back again, if you understand. Bunny man boys, that lump boys up curious about uh 
is the just general perception around the book of Enoch. I mean, it seems like there's been an epic attempt to suppress and discredit it for, you know, frankly, centuries now. Uh, and then also equating it with the system of John D. A lot of people don't realize this, but D never uh, referred to the whole system as Enochian. That was a, like a later addition to it. And certainly it wasn't, I mean, even though D's is uh, the most well-known in the English-speaking uh, world, uh, there were a lot of other systems. I mean, Martinism, for instance, had sort of their own uh, process of theurgy, if you will. But <clears throat> yeah, I just, I find it fascinating that there has been such an ongoing effort to exercise uh, the Book of Enoch from mainstream Christians' accounts and generally to just uh, almost equate it with demonic forces, if you will. Hmm. Uh, do you have a take on that? Well, you know, it sounds like you're a lot more knowledgeable on this than me, perhaps. But um, I personally hold that uh, the truths in the Book of Enoch are self-evident and uh, biblically supported, let's say. Um, I think it was the the late uh, Rob Skiba who referred to these texts as uh, uh, biblically endorsed extra-biblical texts. Um, so I believe Genesis is written in a way that assumes the reader is already well acquainted with the information found in Enoch. Um, because if you read Genesis, you know, and it very quickly just glances over creation, gives this one random paragraph on the giants mating with the angels and sorry, the angels mating with humans and creating giants, and then it quickly moves on to the flood. And you know, that entire probably thousand god, well, only God knows how long that time period truly was, you know, but that's a long chunk of time kind of just missing from from the biblical canon as we know it in the West. Um, the Book of Enoch fills that time perfectly. And I do think when these these verses were written, it was written during a time where the, the people kind of already understood this history quite well. Um, you know, the Book of Enoch is, it would make sense to me that it would be suppressed or muddied or try and kept, I suppose, kept away from the eyes or made to be seen as blasphemous to those who are in like a mainstream church setting because i do think um the less christians understand about this kind of biblical perspective and past about the giants the more they'll kind of continue down their their naive understanding of christianity now that like i said it's not a salvation issue but understanding this history certainly changes your attitude towards how you interact with the earth as a christian I would say dramatically, and I think it would be useful for the powers that be to suppress that this conspiracy even existed. I know Gary Wayne considers that it is a conspiracy to purposefully suppress this information in order to keep the church passive and uh, focused on things that aren't truly important. Um, from my own perspective, I know I understand that the Book of Enoch and the apocryphal texts are canon in, let's say, the Ethiopian Bible. Um, there's over 80 books in the Ethiopian Bible rather than our 66 books of canon. Who's to say what is and isn't correct? I don't I don't trust um, large mega churches, especially something like the Catholic Church and the Vatican. I understand they withhold information readily from people. And I think they have a lot of artifacts uh, proving the existence of Nephilim, which they keep hidden from people, you know. Um, another thing to consider as well is um, if you if you want to go down the route that it, this is a Freemason attempt, if you say the you know, secret societies rule the world, if you want to assume that angle, it's the idea that um, a lot of Freemasons consider Enoch to be one of their patron saints because um, they consider Enoch 
the evil. So there's two Enochs. This is what has to be understood. And this is what the Enoch, the book of Enoch kind of makes clear, which is not good for the Freemasons, is that there are two Enochs. Now, Freemasonry is hidden behind the veil of being a Christian type of um, cult for a long time, you know, and they do that by saying, you know, we, we follow Enoch, who was taken up by God, you know, into heaven. But that's not the same Enoch that they're truly talking about. So if you follow the lineages of uh, Cain, his first son, so the first generation child of Cain, um, after he was banished, was called Enoch, and he named the first city he built after him. And it's it's understood that this this Enoch character is the one who created the first secret societies, uh, the serpent worship cults, uh, kind of built to work hand in hand with the rebellious angels to maintain humanity's focus during this time on the pantheon of angels rather than the true creator. And I do believe Enoch, along with Cain, had a lot of sacred knowledge which was taught to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Um, don't forget, Adam walked with God in the Garden of Eden and was taught a lot of things. In a way, Adam was kind of being groomed to be the, the king over humanity by God. Obviously, that plan was foiled by the serpent, making them fall and have to leave. But um, the knowledge he learned was passed on to his children, and that includes Cain. And after Cain murdered his brother and had his own children, he passed that knowledge on, and it continued down. So what they did with this sacred knowledge of basically how the universe works is occult it. And that's what his son Enoch and uh, Enoch's uh, children, Lamech, are famous for doing in these antediluvian uh, stories. I've heard theories and stories that um, this Enoch character is also Hermes Trismegistus uh, or Thoth, you know. Um, now, that's Enoch the Bad. You know, he was the leader of the secret societies of the antediluvian age. He was the head of the religious order where all secret societies basically have their origins um, before the flood. You know, but then on Seth's side, the sixth generation, the one who wrote the book of Enoch, supposedly, he also had a son called Enoch and he was taken up into heaven and he was sent as a messenger to the watchers for the judgment that was about to come upon them. Now, this I don't think a lot of people really consider that there were two Enochs as much or the importance of this. I think they consider the one Enoch in existence. Most I don't think most people dig much deeper than that concept. And so when the uh, Freemasons claim, yeah, you know, Enoch is, is one of our guys because we're a Christian association, I don't think people understand just what Enoch they're truly talking about, you know. Um, so to suppress the Book of Enoch, I think is probably, uh, well, there's a lot of reasons. It's very, there's people who benefit from that, I can certainly see, you know. But um, in terms of the esoteric information and histories behind the whole suppression of it, I, I wouldn't really know. Um, but after... A, you know, after reading a book myself, I like I said at the start, I find it self-evident that it, it is biblically supported as being true. And then if you look at outside sources away from the Bible, there's nothing that tells me from other people's stories in other cultures that Enoch is false. Um, so I, I don't know. I think a lot of mega churches in this world as well um, probably see it as a threat, like I said, because it... Um, there's, there's a lot of corruption in, in modern Christianity, and I do think if people started getting a little bit more historical and serious about this type of stuff, they would start to very quickly drop um, the these corrupted uh, cults, I suppose, they're in these churches they're members of because they, their priorities would start to change. Um, but again, I'm not an expert on this personally, on that <laughs> subject itself, but um, what, what do you think? What's your personal view on why this has been suppressed? 
Well, yeah, it's a fascinating subject because, I mean, my understanding is even in uh, like Ethiopia, where it was a canonical text, it still was not something that was usually included in like a standard Bible that uh, the common person would have had in their possession. It was still something that was only really, uh, you know, available to a lot of the uh, upper hierarchy within the Ethiopian church, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think almost more than anything it really changes the narrative if you will in terms of the nature of humanity Mm -hmm. because it's sort of this ongoing situation of humanity as being this uh sinful rebellious uh race that must continuously grovel to try and get back into god's good graces whereas i think with the book of enoch it's after the fall a little bit of a different take in the sense that it wasn't our fault essentially (laughs) you know we were corrupted by the uh intrigues and so forth of these beings that came to us and that's something that i think a lot of interests over the years have tried to hide Hmm. sense that it very much i think among other things um indicates maybe even a different uh, perspective on the whole concept i guess of original sin and that kind of things i mean it could you know very much uh, if you look deeply into this really upend a lot of standard takes on christianity and certainly you know what has been supported very much in the west uh, through the catholic church and through especially a lot of the protestant denominations obviously the um the orthodox churches have always been a little more esoteric but still it's hmm. very interesting to my mind in that regard and that's one of the reasons why i think it's so fascinating that there has been this effort to sort of equate it with occultism and magic and so forth in the contemporary era and going back further it was just something that you know, we did not want average people to even read um, yeah i could see i could see how you know the perspective changing would in, in, a, in a way i suppose empower people to maybe not need the church as much so i suppose it, it again not i'm not saying absolves humanity of guilt because it takes two to tango you know um, mankind played its role in the corruption um, as I explained in my book, you know, it wasn't just simply because the fallen angels did bad things that humanity became bad. Uh, humanity had it in their own hearts to do evil as well and worked with the angels willingly. You know, um, it's it just certainly I, I don't certainly see it as it means it wasn't our fault anymore. You know, I do think we we have our problems and that which means we obviously needed um, the savior of some kind. Um and I, I do think we played our part in the corruption of creation in that early year time. Um, well, I think in it, the sense, because what I'm, I mean, if I recall correctly, I believe like in the narrative in the book of Enoch, it was really the angels that uh, the fallen angels that gave us, uh, you know, for instance, the knowledge of uh, warfare and that kind of thing. In fact, I believe, was it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was Azazel who, who supposedly came yeah, down. Yeah, I mean, and, essentially, you know, yeah. he instructed us how to like, you know, march in ranks and wage war, and I mean, a lot of others. So, I mean, I get what you're saying, but it's like the perspective in the Book of Enoch is it's like this wasn't really something that we came to on our own. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it was in our hearts to lust after that kind of power and information to begin with. I think is what the point was. I was trying to make. Um, you know, humanity wanted this knowledge to dominate and take over each other and subjugate and enslave, you know, 
Um, and Kane played his part in disseminating the knowledge, like I said, occulting it and using it to control the peoples around him. Um, like I said, um, knowledge is power in that respect. And the more ignorant people are, um, those with the knowledge can cut, rule over them. And I, I, again, I think that can apply to why the Book of Enoch was suppressed. I think um, the church has exercised a lot of power over people in a corrupt way. And I do think said the Book of Enoch alleviates that power from them in ways they're not really happy with. Um but like I said, that isn't to say humanity is innocent in the Antediluvian past. Far from it. From from what I've researched, you no, know, we were just as bad as the Nephilim, essentially in our actions. Um, you know, it it was enough to make God consider it not worth it anymore. <laughs> you know, it needs to be reset, and we need to try again. Basically, I mean, you think about the flood narrative. You know, the flood narrative was a huge. Um, point of contention for me as an atheist new age type you know gnostic thinker of the time like what kind of cruel god would send a flood but and the more i've researched just how bad that time period was the more i understand that it truly was a mercy and an attempt to try and save what is good about humanity you know um a last ditch effort it's not like he didn't give us a chance or fair warning um we had every opportunity to turn from our ways in that respect and stop following the these these liars but um, what they offered uh, at that time was considered uh, more important than what the creator of the universe could offer, and that was power. You know, uh, I think if you look at the antediluvian age, humanity was not only morally corrupted, I do believe that their flesh was also corrupted genetically. I do think they they took upon themselves to have changes away from the original creation to make themselves more powerful. And this is where we get into myths of things like centaurs or... Um, you know, half human, half animal hybrids like satyrs, um, as well, or mini miniads or nymphs, you know, on the female side or sirens. Um, I, I do think there was a lot more corruption going on than simply just, uh, people doing and thinking bad things. I think, uh, creation itself was on the brink of being utterly irredeemable, um, from a genetic standpoint too. Um, so, so again, the book of Enoch for me personally, like I said, it's not a salvation issue, you know, but it's definitely, I think all other stories around the earth that aren't biblical attest to it being true, you know, so I, I see no reason to doubt it. Um, I think it adds a lot of interesting context to what was going on there. And I do believe it brings a lot more people to, uh, God rather than away from God who have an atheistic standpoint. So, um, I don't, I personally don't see the need to suppress it or hide it from people. Um, but I, I can see why some would, I think it's a threat in, in that respect. Right. So what are some of the additional, uh, representations of demons in various folk traditions, carnivals and rituals across the world? Right. Yes. So this, this is uh, something I've covered in extent over many episodes on my YouTube channel. Actually, this is pretty much what I do every week. I release a video, um, talking about all the traditional folk traditions around the world that, uh, focus on venerating ancestor spirits or demon spirits openly sometimes. Um, now we have to understand, first of all, ancestor spirit worship is a worldwide phenomenon. It's not just, uh, to one ge a geographical location every every continent has tribes um who traditionally in their own oral traditions which they've been doing for millennia uh venerate the ancestor spirits now when we say ancestor spirits and perhaps a secular mind would would uh hear that and think okay so they're worshiping grandma and granddad or great grandma and granddad you know um 
or that some uncles and aunties and people within the family but that's not what they mean by ancestor worship what what they venerate are ancient beings that were here long before them who they believe are the progenitors of their culture um so what they're doing when they worship their ancestors is they're venerating the nephilim spirits on the other side who were once the kings and rulers over these ancient cultures um so if we go through a few examples africa africa is probably one of the main examples of ancestor worship we can find uh, now africa is a huge continent with many varying and intermixed cultures all across it across it if i was to choose one um to focus on at the moment um in west africa um there's a tribe called the dogans uh, now the dogan tribe is quite an infamous one because they were said to have immense knowledge on star systems they should have no business knowing anything about including the moons of jupiter um and they claim they were taught this knowledge by the gods you know um they have a story basically of uh, something called the nomo which was a a fish like angelic being that fell from the sky and landed in the river and it taught them great knowledge basically um which is an interesting concept i do like i said i think a lot of these fallen angels were animistic in nature you know had animalistic features um if you will look at pantheon of gods all around the earth there always seems to be some kind of sea god or a god of the sea um, which goes by many names um I don't know, poseidon or neptune if you want to go off the most common ones um so i think this nomo was an example of this type of uh, watch class angel who came down to this particular tribe and um dominated over them you know it's possible as well through pure speculation on my behalf that this was um, the offspring of a fallen angel some kind of nephilim hybrid itself I, I wouldn't hazard a guess but if you look at the dogan tribe and you look at the aesthetics behind the the clothes they were when they do their rituals to venerate these ancient ancestor spirits um they they essentially look like clowns or they have prominent features um which if you pull away from each individual culture they all seem to have a feature or maybe a grouping of features which we could call clown like so the prevalence of things like polka dots uh, multicolored tassels or ribbons uh, bells get used quite a lot as well um fast paced movements and the waving around of these tassels and hay and these this hair which mimics them looking like beings made of ethereal nature or sound so representing the demonic nature of them um they usually come in most highly multicolored sequin reflective clothing and they openly say throughout all these african cultures and what they're trying to do is dress like and represent the spirits and what they're trying to do is evoke the spirit to possess their body so then they can act out being that spirit and there's many reasons why these cultures do this, uh, mainly in Africa, uh, but all over the earth. Um, it, it's the veneration is usually to gain something from it, so power, wealth, fertility, um, something along that line to benefit the tribe. Um, so the Dogan tribe is one example. There's the Wadobi tribe, which is quite a famous one in Africa as well, which has become quite popular. I think Vice even did a um, a documentary about them, but it's basically the men in that culture uh, adorn themselves with um, very psychedelic makeup including, again, the sequins, the mirrors, the multicolored beads, the fractal pattern designs and clothing. Um, and I believe what they're trying to do is make the skin or the the patterns they adorn themselves with is to look like serpents because they're venerating something which is from their ancient past and has passed down traditionally all the way down. 
So there you have the ancestor worship, for example, with the Dogen tribes, where they dress like particular ancestor spirits in order to evoke them to come and possess them. Um, the Wadabi tribe instead dress this way to emulate something which they consider a beauty standard. So in the Wadabi nomadic tribe, so they're a traveling tribe that go across all of North Africa. They don't have a specific location. But what they believe as a beauty standard is that the tallest men are the most attractive, like a giant, let's say. And having incredibly white, wide smiles and having bright whites of the eye, so wide eyes, are considered features that are also attractive. So what they do in their rituals, for example, is they, for hours on end, um, trip on a psychedelic brew they make so they can keep going for hours and hours and hours and hours doing a repetitive dance where they roll their eyes to the back of the head and bare their teeth in wide grin smiles. Um, now, these beauty standards, which the women then judge the men by, um, I believe they picked up from something they once venerated as great and powerful and attractive in the past, which would have been the the giant Nephilim rulers of that age. And the tradition has just carried on. Uh, nothing has got in the way of changing this tradition. It seems bizarre to us now when we see it from our Western modern perspective, but their traditions haven't changed in thousands of years. So what we're getting there is a glimpse into something ancient. You know, so when you see these tribes in Africa, and this is all over Africa, I've just named two tribes. There must be hundreds of them I could reference, but they all have the same similar aesthetic. They do dances behind ryth rhythmic drumming dances. Um, sound plays a huge role in these rituals. They were multicolored, psychedelic, fractaled, patterned clothing, which represents the entities which they call ancestors, which they want to possess their bodies. And they believe by dressing this way and doing these rituals, it attracts them so they can gain favors from them or appease them or it's something like that, provide protection to the tribe or something like they, they believe they're gaining some kind of power from it. But um, you find these ancient practices, which have been passed down for millennia, have not changed. Um, and what they're trying to emulate or represent is these things on the other side of the veil. So that being said of Africa, we can go to Asian cultures. We find in um, China, um, even uh, some areas of Mongolia, Siberia, um, we find dragon worship. It's a very common reptilian dragon worship. You know, the Chinese dragons are an infamous concept. Um, but within that as well, they also do ancestor worship rituals. They leave food out and do rituals to appease the spirits on the other side. Um, in in Japan, they have a particular spirit, which you call the, the hunger spirits. And these hungry spirits are constantly wandering the netherworlds with an insatiable appetite that cannot be filled. So people leave out food offerings for them in order to help uh, satiate their hunger and keep them at bay. You know, um, so what we're describing there are the exact same things described in the Bible. Um, unclean spirits who wander dry places with hungers that cannot be satisfied. Um, but then you go further south to the Polynesian regions um, and places like Malaysia, and you'll also find that they have their own people, um, such as um, the Mudmen tribes. Um, now, the Mudmen tribes wear clothing to venerate, again, what they call demons. Now, they have this um, particular concept in mind, you find this all over the earth, uh, that if you dress like a demon, then you scare away the demon. So to ward off evil spirits, they dress like the evil spirit. Now, I'm not sure that about the logic behind that being too sound, personally, 
it sounds to me like they've been deceived somewhere along the way. Um, but you find a lot of the reasons people dress like this is either veneration, emulation, um, the intent for personal possession, or to ward away evil spirits. Um, so you get these mud men tribes um, who are, you know, the the black individuals, you know, um, but they they wipe their skin up as much as they can with mud. When it dries, it gives the illusion that they have incredibly white skin. And that is said to be a very common descriptor of the Nephilim of the past. They had white skin and red hair. Um, they seem to wear masks that um, exaggerate the features to be so large and, and um, caricatured in nature. Big wide grins, bulging eyes, big brow ridges, not dissimilar from how a clown looks in the Western perspective, you know. And they also give themselves incredibly long claws and fingers by putting bamboo shoots on the ends of their fingers. Again, they are giving echoes to something that haunted their cultural wants in the ancient past that they have continued through the oral traditions. Um, you can go to the Maori traditions um, of New Zealand, you know, and they have what we call the haka, which again is a ritualistic dance in which they adorn their bodies with black and white fractal face paints and then stick their tongues out while they are screaming, you know. Um, now, the tongue sticking out motif is another very common pattern we see all across ancient cultures. If we go to, let's say, Greece, um, one of the most famous examples of this is the Gorgon. Uh, now, the Gorgon, as we know it, is Medusa, uh, one of three sisters. Uh, Medusa was once a woman who I believe was turned into these monsters by a, a jealous god, a goddess. I can't remember her name off the top of my head right now. Um, but from what I understand is every representation of the Gorgon isn't the snake-haired, uh, serpent-tailed beast that we're so familiar with. All the ancient representations of a gorgon has a human body with wings, um, with bird-like wings, and they have this face, uh, not with serpent hair, but they have a specific face which has an incredibly wide jester joker-like grin with um, tusk-like fangs, and the tongue is always sticking out. Now, I think if you if you observe most visuals that we have, the ancient visuals we have of Medusa, um, I think we find the closest archetype to a modern day clown, one of the one of the closest we can find, which I believe the clown is an emulation of. But the tongue sticking out motif then continues throughout all these worldwide cultures. You know, like I said, the Maori's hacker being one example with the psychedelic skin patterns. Um, the god in the center of the Aztec calendars, for example, um, always has the tongue sticking out. We have uh, Kali in the Hindu culture always has the tongue sticking out. Um, we have black and white impermanence um, in Taiwan, which also is an entity that always has the tongue sticking out. These twin black and white entities are said to be psychopomps who drag the souls of men to the underworld, you know. Um, if you look at the tiki masks as well of the Hawaiian culture, they always have their tongue sticking out with the similar grin you find from the Gorgon in um, Greece, for example. Um, now, these shared traditional imagery shared across cultures, which have no right having similar features to represent their demons because the, the amount of land between them and ocean between them is so vast. It makes you start to consider that it looks like they all seem to experience at some point encounters with similar looking entities and the stories behind these entities is that they were rulers of some way or tyrants of some kind who were cruel to the people of the time um again i can only touch on so many in this conversation i've covered hundreds in my series and i have hundreds to cover in my book as well 
Um, but if we were to cover maybe, let's say, the European land now, so you know, in the Americas and the South Americas, you have the Hayoka Jester type character. The the Joker Kachina is a very common one. Um, and the, the, the sacred uh, clown, it seems to be a common thing there. But what I focused on more is the aesthetics of the traditional folk culture's dress um, and the symbolism behind it. It seems very um, reminiscent of clownish-like features which are actually from a, a direct veneration of the Nephilim. Uh, so if we go to Europe, we have what we call cookery. Uh, now, cookery is a custom in Bulgarian lands, which originates from the Thracians, which is a Greek culture, but even older. Um, so during the, the, the days of the Thracian god of joy, Dionysus um, was a large character in that, who was considered kind of a, um, a fertility god, but an outsider god as well. Uh, so the cookers celebrate the passing of winter and the arrival of summer fertility. So it's a part of fertility rituals, like I said, in veneration of Dionysus. Now, that's the old roots of it. Um, but today, what that looks like is basically uh, men dressing up like um, wild men or hybrid humans with animal animalistic features and also um, venerating what well, they consider themselves their own form of ancestor spirit worship. So they believe that they um, protect their village by dressing like these demons. Um, and that's what they know them as, demons. Now, it's interesting. You have to remember this European cookery is a ritualistic festival that happens every year in which thousands of people gather to dress in ways which are identical to these other cultures all around the world, which represent what they openly call demons. You know, some cultures don't call them demons. Some cultures, like I said, prefer to the, call them ancestors of some kind. I do think a lot of cultures do associate their entire culture to the demons that they worship, you know, and they wouldn't have it without them. Um, so in Romania, um, they have their own subculture as well, which is very similar to the cookery of Bulgaria. Um, but they have what's known as a Solomonari. Now, a Solomonari is a kind of wizard. But his description is he is a giant wild man um, with eyes that stick out and hard red hair. Another common Nephilim description, red hair, white skin. Um, but he's a wizard who is born different from other humans. And when they're born and they have this look about them, which is not quite human, they get taken immediately from birth and raised in a school for wizards. And they get raised basically to be um, people who control the weather and control lightning. And then these particular people are then raised to control dragons. Um, so there's this link between serpent cult worship um, and these giants in Romania, which um, have are born with natural abilities, which are supernatural. And again, no one knows if they still exist today, but it's just this, this ancient culture, which is reminiscent of, of Nephilim descriptions and myths. Um, and then we go all throughout Europe and we have what we call carnivals, which are very common on almost every single country within Europe. They have their own festival and carnival of some kind. So the Venetian carnival of Italy is a prime example, which comes out the uh, Commedia dell'Arts tradition of uh, theatre, which has its roots again in Dionysus and Greek culture, which again, Greece was a huge nodal point for a lot of these um, representations of Nephilim. What's and, interesting uh, no, too, because I believe... Um... Venice was also, um, if I recall correctly, a Byzantine uh, city uh, had been founded and sponsored for a lot of years by the Eastern Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And I think um, 
as well, uh, a lot of the clergy and so forth really fled over uh, after the collapse of Constantinople. So that's uh, fascinating because the Gnosticism in a lot of uh, Neoplatonism was never really suppressed in the Eastern Church. I mean, there were periodic attempts here and there, but mm -hmm. it was much more open than in any of the Western churches by this point, i.e. Circa, circa around like the 14th, 15th century. So I've often thought that that's one of the reasons why Venice kind of later became a, a major occult mecca. But that's that's really fascinating that it had this early connection with the carnival as well. It, well, uh, to be honest, Italy and the Commedia dell'Arts movement has a huge connection to why we even have the clown today that we know in the West and we depict mm -hmm. him in Imagine when we have a clown. Exactly. Exactly. So it's a huge and it's something I want to get into detail because it really does explain um, the origin of the modern clown and its nefarious roots to do with secret societies and Freemasonry. To summarize my point earlier, um, you know, we have what we call folk traditions all around the world. And just like we had flood myths that cover every region, every sorry, every tribe within every region, within every country, on every continent, we also have these folk traditions which follow the same pattern, which all have similar aesthetic features. And they have no business sharing these features, but the only common connector is this ancient past I described earlier. They're all remembering something that has continued through oral traditions. And now I don't know if they actually, it's been lost in translation. I think some may still know that they are openly worshipping demons and trying to bring them into them. So uh, things like voodoo culture, they know what they're doing, you know, and they openly talk about it, that they're evoking the ancestor spirits to be intentionally possessed. But then you get other cultures um, like the cookery who wear these garments, which look similar, but they believe they're doing it to scare away the demons, you know, I think some people are more deceived than others into what's going on here. But one thing's for certain is every culture is venerating the Nephilim one way or the other. Um, and it can be seen visually. It's hard to describe with words on a podcast like this. So I've tried to visually explain all of this on my YouTube channel, you know, um, but it doesn't matter where you go. You can spin a, spin a globe and pop your finger on it wherever it stops. You can look into that folk traditional culture and you will find clown-like aesthetics in their imitations of ancestor spirits. Um, and I, I believe the Western clown is an amalgamation of all these features. And it's it's where we've got our image of a clown from. And like I said, the Italian Commedia dell'Arte movement of the Renaissance period, like I said, the 14th, 15th century, uh, coming out of that period of church domination and the, the cancellation of theatre shows, the reemergence of it brought with it um, the wilderman practices of the Europe into the common theatre. So, you know, what these Wilderman um, cultures do as a ritualistic fertility practice, um, those characters were brought into the theatre in Italy. And from the um, the character of 
uh, Helikin is known as, um, who was a wild man giant who had a club, and he had with him a band of demons or human hybrid monsters, and they basically ran through villages causing chaos at some point. Now that's the memory of them. So this wild man giant was known as Helikin. Um, and the idea of there being a giant godlike creature with a band of merry, mischievous uh, creatures is the Dionysus story. Now, Dionysus was described to travel from village to village with his band of merry meanids and uh, satyrs who were hybrid creatures, uh, basically bringing sex, revelry, parties and all sorts with him, you know, um, causing destruction wherever he went. But people followed him because they could let go of their own self and get lost in his kind of trance, you know. And that's the same story of this wild man called Helikin who had his band of merry demons. Um, as he got more Christianized in their descriptions as time went on, you know, these things started to be more um, described as demons rather than as gods or demigods, um, which to me is just talking about the same thing, you know, um, hybrid fallen angels and Nephilim, basically. Uh, but from this Helikin character, they created someone called Arlecchino, um, or as the French called it, Harlequin. Um, and within the, the revival of theatre in Italy during that time, you know, that time period of the 15th, 16th century, um, these things called Harlequinades became popular with travelling troops of uh, performers, which were known as the Commedia dell'Art movement. And they brought with them, you know, this, this resurgence of the wild man in their features, which came with their pantomimes they called Harlequinades. So the Harlequin character its roots are literally the representation of the wild men of Europe, which are a direct representation of Nephilim demons. Um, so that's where you get the Harlequin character. Now, Ardicino, um was originally dressed quite uh, subtle, but as time went on, his 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 pattern became sequined uh, diamond patterns of multicolors, and he played traditionally a energetic, acrobatic, chaotic character. Now, as time went on, uh, this, this character of Arlecchino became known as Harlequin, and he was basically a protagonist who was after a love interest, the daughter, Columbine, the daughter of Pantaloon, who was a rich aristocrat. And while chasing after this, this daughter of a, ri a rich aristocrat, the servant of the rich aristocrat was the clown, and he would basically be the foil for Harlequin to get this woman. Um, now, traditionally, the servant, the clown character, was dressed in servant rags. So nothing akin to a clown costume as we understand it today. Nothing at all. He would wear rag clothing. And Harlequin was the star of the show for this early period, you know, through the 16th, 17th, and the early 18th century. Uh, going into the 19th century. Sorry, the 19th century, so the, uh, the 1800s. We find there was a huge shift in... Um, the, basically the nature of of Harlequinades. We found that the character of, of Harlequin had kind of become boring and um, the clown was becoming more interesting in the eyes of the viewers. So during this great Renaissance period of of wonderful um, resurgence of theatre, you know, with the dissipation of the, the dogmatic control of Christianity over the creative arts, and we find that demonic representations were becoming more popular in theatrical art through the representation of the Harlequin. Um, now, as I mentioned earlier, 
to dress like a demon is to evoke the demon and folk traditional ritualistic practices understand this quite thoroughly you know but i think the tradition of theater or the actors involved don't know that that's what they're doing you know and i think it's the same practice but the setting has changed it's simply on a wooden stage rather than in a tundra around a fire you know um so i do think the embodiment of of harlequin to dress like harlequin was to evoke the spirit of the nephilim in order to, to invite yourself to be possessed and this is something we'll get into later which is um you should bear in mind what i've just said there you know but uh in terms of finishing the story about the origins of the modern clown you know we have um in the early 1800s so the late 1700s early 1800s you know we had a person called joey grimaldi who was making waves in the London um, art scene, who had borrowed from the Camille de l'Arts kind of movement and the Harlequin aids were very popular in Britain around this time. Um, and he played the role of um, the clown quite miraculously in a way that people just loved and could not get enough of. And he was famous for being one of the, 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 the greatest clowns within the Harlequin aid stories to ever exist. And people would travel far and wide to see the great Grimaldi, you know, perform as the clown now people associate grimaldi with being the person who invented what we know today as the modern day clown and he was so popular in fact that he overshadowed the harlequin and the clown now became the main character of the harlequin aids for future shows from then on and the harlequin character became second it used to be the main character but it became second and people theorize this is because the clown essentially became what the harlequin originally was the agent of chaos, um, the 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 demonic character that was just there to to cause chaos and mix the story up in in ways that were humorous and wild, which is what Harlequin used to be before he just became a doting romantic in the story. Um, so this take up, so basically, the clown is literally the 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 offspring of the Harlequin, which metaphorically speaking is identical to the clown being the offspring of the fallen angels. You know, it's kind of interesting that that metaphor played out on the stage um, in history, as well as in real life, if you want to consider it that way. Um, but the, the thing that people have got mistaken, and this is the smoking gun I kind of want to get into to the origins of the clown um, being within the secret societies is that all this was happening in a place known as Drury Lane. And Drury Lane is infamous for being the place as well, which created uh, a lot of artistic movements and shows. But not only that, um, it's where the Royal Antediluvian Order of the Buffaloes, which is a prominent secret society from Britain, was ordered. Just to interrupt you right quick, where is this located exactly? In London. Okay, okay. Just you know, yeah, yeah. Clear about that. Of course, in London, yeah. So in this particular street on Drury Lane where a lot of these shows took place with Joseph Grimaldi um, around the same time period, we find there was an establishment of a secret society which is prolific all over the world now called the Royal Antediluvian um, Order of the Buffaloes. And its its roots are is a mimicry of the same structure as Freemasonry. And if you look into it, you can find all it has all the same symbols as Freemasonry. So it's an offshoot of Freemasonry in, in its own right. Um, and this was basically made up of actors and performers. They were the main members originally, um, and stagehands particularly. Um, there's there's multiple theories on how it came to be. The, people say it was uh, an, a, basically an offshoot of an other secret society uh, full of actors who got so full that the stagehands were no longer welcome. So they created their own society, which was this Royal Antediluvian Order of the Buffaloes. 
Uh, not only is it fascinating that they, they use the word antediluvian to represent pre-flood in their own secret society name, that's bizarre enough, but they also have um, their own chapters named in Newcastle after Joseph Grimaldi, so they they held the clown in high regards. Um, but that being said, in this area, there was a prominent Freemason known as Charles Dibdin. Now, Charles Dibdin was a songwriter, a playwright, a creative person within that time period, within the same geographical location. He ended up working with Grimaldi on Harlequinades, and Grimaldi starred in his particular written Harlequinades. And he played the clown, obviously. That's what um, you know, Joey was known for. And one particular show... I think in literally the 1800, exactly, one zero, uh, sorry, um, 1800, he put on a show, a Harlequinade, in which this Charles Dibdin changed all the outfits of all the characters in that moment. And he created the very first clown outfit, which Joe Grimaldi wore and made popular through his character. But he didn't create the clown design. It was this Freemason called Charles Dibdin. And I found um, he was a part of a chapter for Leicester, um, which is um, a borough of London, I believe. And I found basically um, members of free, uh, Freemason members of that chapter wrote a passage about him in the in in the minutes for their meetings. So the, I have the link here. It was written in 1933, and he basically wrote a passage. Um, about a show in which Charles Dibdin had created called Harlequin Freemason, Charles Dibdin's Masonic Pantomime. And he's referred to here as Brother Charles Dibdin. So this this Charles Dibdin, who uh, ran his own theatre in London and hired Joey Grimaldi, he's a high-ranking Freemason who made his own Harlequinade pantomime specifically about the glory of Freemasonry. Um, and he's mentioned here and given accolades by later members of the same of the same chapter of how great a man he was and how he wrote many songs for sailors and the British Army and so forth. Um, and he's I basically found the evidence here. It's not mentioned anywhere else. You can't find information that he was a Freemason other than this one book from 1933, which I assume was not really meant to be seen by people like myself, you know. But he is a brother. He was a member, a well-established member of Freemasonry during that time. And he's the one who decided to change pantomime forever and redesign the costumes. And I think he has intentionally created the clown because he knows the roots of Harlequin AIDS. He, he understood, you know, what the Harlequin truly represented, the wild men of Europe, the Nephilim spirits of the past. And Freemasonry is that, as far as I'm concerned, and it's been proven time and time again, is just a continuation of the antediluvian cults which existed to venerate and work with fallen angels and the Nephilim. After the flood, they just continued more of the same. You know, they they, they considered their, their sacred occulted knowledge, which they keep within their societies, to be the knowledge taught to Cain from Adam. The seven sacred sciences. Uh, Freemasonry is just one of the sciences, geometry, you know, and they hold this knowledge as sacred and they've kept, continued it, up until today so for a freemason you know <sighs> it's well known that the ringling brothers in florida in sarasota who created circuses so this is in the early 1900s they were all freemasons every last one of them and they kind of continued the work of this person uh they 
made their own clown shows um, with Barnum and Bailey, another circus, which was very big. Both of those brothers were also Freemasons and they popularized the modern circus as we know it too and continue to popularize the modern image that we have in the West of a clown. And um, it's, I haven't got the book here to hand, but there is a book written about this um, that explains basically that um, these brothers put on shows for fellow Freemasons. All the outfits for the shows were designed by companies who designed the robes for the Freemasons. Um, And they put on a show about Solomon and his temple. Um, but they use circus clowns to represent the demons in that story. Um, and basically what you were witnessing at yeah, these circus shows was a retelling of the rituals performed in in these uh, secret society orders, but on a grand scale within a circus. And for the initiated, they were watching their mythos being played out in front of them. But for the uninitiated and the profane, they were watching a bunch of clowns acting silly with a bunch of funny animals. You know, it's... So the whole circus, the whole clown concept that we have in the West, its roots are thoroughly seeped in the occult of Freemasonry. It was designed specifically by a Freemason, and all secret societies are just a continuation of the serpent worship cults of the fallen angels and um, the Nephilim spirits of the past. I believe they're in contact with the Nephilim. I think they venerate the Nephilim still. Um Excellent examples of this are going to the modern day is the Shriners, which is a higher level offshoot of Freemasonry. They make it a staple decision to constantly dress up as clowns and go out there to, you know, raise money for the children, as they say. But what they're doing is no different than what African tribes or North American tribes or tribes across every continent do when they venerate their ancestor spirits. They dress like the thing to evoke the thing. And our version of what they do in these Eastern countries is the clown. And the only issue is for us in the West, we don't know that's what it means. It's occulted. It's it's truly hidden from us in plain sight. You know, you understand. Um, so I'll stop there for now. <laughs> I think I've got a lot of information there. Uh, let me know if there's anything you want to know before we continue. But um, that's basically the history of the modern clown as we know it. And yet its roots are in um, Indo-European representations of demons. Well, it's interesting, too, uh, in terms of uh, Japanese no theater. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but um, in the classical performances in no theater, the actors um, also wear these uh, really uh, deformed looking masks and so mm-hmm. forth. Often they adopt very strange body postures. Uh, they walk in very slow contorted fashion and so forth and essentially it's pretty openly acknowledged that especially the lead actor in the play uh is being possessed during Mm -hmm. the performance that's essentially that the purpose of it was to kind of sort of the new age parlance draw down the moon into um the particular actor for the performance so yeah that's kind of something i can see like with a parallel to what you're describing there with uh, yeah well there's there's a thing in south korea called a madang which is a shaman basically um it's mainly it's only females who do it but there are male ones but it's rarely a male that does it um, and they become shamans unwillingly because they get basically go through extreme trauma, which opens them up to the spiritual realm. And they inadvertently end up becoming these shamans called madangs. 
And these madangs uh, get hired by wealthy people to come to their homes and put on private ritual dances. And these rituals are specifically designed to evoke the demonic spirits, which uh, these families believe are plaguing them in some way or making them unfortunate, and then to exorcise them away from the family. But before that happens, the ritual they do ends with the madang being possessed by the demon. And then they communicate with the demon then, and then the madang exercises the demon only after the demon manifests through the possessed shaman. And that's a common practice. People pay money for that, good money for that as well, really good money for that in, in Korea, you know. Um, and it's it's all I'm saying is we're, we're quite ignorant in the West. If you go to every other culture, I'm talking every other culture here other than European, maybe North American culture type thing, um, you know, this 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 Western, we call it Western culture, don't we? But it covers a vast land. Um, but if you go to the traditional folk cultures of the East and the South, um, you find that they know exactly what they're doing when they dress a specific way. They are intentionally dressing like something in order to be possessed by it willingly and openly. We're very ignorant in the West. We don't think there's much power behind the clothes you wear. You know, um, we're not that superstitious, we'd call it. Um, but just because we're ignorant of the power behind doing those things doesn't mean we're we're immune to it. You understand? Um, again, I don't know if you want to go by the the script you've written here, but you, you know, you'll ask later how this manifests in modern culture. So perhaps we can get into that. But uh, before I continue, is there anything else oh, you want to ask me first? Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, do you have a uh, take on uh, Victor Hugo's "The Man Who Laughs" in this kind of sense? Um, is that an old film? Is that an old black and white film? I believe. I've, well, I've it, was the, it was the. Well, I mean, it was it originated from the book though that Hugo wrote uh, in the middle of the nineteenth century, and I think the the novel really gets into this more because effectively you can almost read the deformation. Uh, of the lead character who's you know given the infamous classical smile mm -hmm. as an attempt to possess the kid by this dark force and then mm -hmm. of course later he uh ends up being uh you know basically in a circus as well uh, mm -hmm. but yeah it's an interesting sort of concept with that uh, especially if you really take a kind of uh, esoteric take on some of the accounts of the um oh gosh this the ship ride that uh several of the uh oh gosh the cachinos or whatever they're called the child deformers uh engage in because again a lot of people don't realize this but i mean the practice of uh you know these dwarves and hunchbacks and stuff like that in these royal courts um a lot of times kids were actually abducted and deliberately deformed for these purposes very young and then mm -hmm. they grew up to be um you know used at the royal courts so it was you know an even more exploitive practice than uh, what we generally realize but this is kind of something hugo gets into as well as implying that there was a very stark ritualistic purpose to this and it basically Absolutely. backfires and uh, the main character you know isn't possessed he actually is a very decent person despite uh the hardship that he endures throughout his life because of his deformity but it's a very interesting concept and i find it fascinating how um you know, later on, this was heavily adapted into uh, the whole mythos around the Joker. And of course, again, I don't know if you're 
very familiar with Victor Hugo, but uh, he was very into a lot of different uh, kind of occult and spiritual practices. Of course, he was really fascinated by spiritualism uh, during the mid-19th century. He was also uh, an early um, Gentile to uh, read the Zohar and uh, explore some of the more mystical strands of the Kabbalah, a lot of other uh, things like mm-hmm. that. So he was definitely very knowledgeable in a lot of these uh, subjects. And I do think you can see that a lot in The Man Who Laughs and the you know kind of symbolism that he used. Yeah. Somebody recommended to me uh, about a month ago that I look into his artwork um, and it seems like a lot of his representations of demons are quite clown-like. That's what they were trying to point out to me. And um, I'm quickly just doing a Google, a Google search now, a cursory one. And uh, yeah, it seems like he was manifesting within his artwork representations of the demonic from his own experiences, I assume. Um, and, you know, it, everyone has their own stylized way of representing it. But what, I, what I find in my research is the common aesthetic themes are clown-like features. You know, um, and it wouldn't surprise me that he would bring into his artwork this idea of a wide smile, which obviously later inspired characters like the Joker and the Jester in modern artwork. You know, um, yeah, yeah, I can see it. I can definitely see it. Um, I'll probably end up doing a video about him eventually, to be to be honest. But uh, like I said, uh, I haven't covered everything yet because the more stuff just keeps getting thrown at me, which is just fascinating. That keeps building upon and expanding this theory. Um. But as far as Victor Hugo goes, I'm still relatively ignorant to his works. I wouldn't hazard to guess to say much more about it right now. Oh, fair enough. But yeah, I would definitely highly recommend uh, reading the novel. I mean, I'm not really a big reader of novels either, but uh, it's actually quite good. There's a lot of very uh, interesting social commentary on um, the political system in the UK at the time. Um, It's really a fascinating work on a lot of levels. But I mean, there is a very pronounced esoteric strain in it that is not recognized a lot and I find it interesting too that it is typically kind of uh, given the short shaft in terms of a lot of his other more well-known works like Lame Biz. All right I think that that is a good note to wrap things up on for now. I will be back here with Paul next week for the second half of this discussion. Hopefully, that is to say, uh, pending that the world doesn't end or some other unforeseen major event in the intern, one never really knows when you start going down the murky netherworld of clowns, after all. But regardless, it will be back here sooner or later, and it is going to be a slower conclusion, guys. I can assure you of that. So on that note, I will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for your support and listening. And that, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the go Jay. We were ready, my people there, they feeling me. Down low, skin roll, more characters than Stephen King. Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all. I ain't in a hurry, y'all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Stuck down in the stick. Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what. Put it up and knock it down. Moving on that big around. Come on, mama, jump down. Stick it out, say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hey
Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace go to war for it About a Genghis Chapo. Come on, legalize it. No need to advertise it. The weed cures the cancer. Everybody even caught a realized if a farmer don't make cash money. When we rock that stash, honey, best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy with people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs. Officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. On crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hoodie blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maypole. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said, people always bitching about the government here, but that war. Our whole civilization, what? 